Hello, Captain Halper of the 3rd Division. Uh, after some of the events in the last couple of weeks, I don't know if I want a, a faux military title. <laughs> uh, hello, Jordan. <laughs> of, the, of the peaceful uh, Norwegian will be appointed by those. countryside. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Of the uh, socialist club that meets every Tuesday. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I see that you are wearing some, uh, some, some new tech. Yes, I have, uh, evolved into (laughs) spatial audio and computational EQ. That's where I'm at right now. Wow. Those sound like headline features of of the the Apple Apple AirPods Max. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Headliners. Um, yeah, I just got some AirPods Maxes along with my residence card. Oh, wow. So you really have evolved. For Norway. So it was like two things in one day. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's great. So I'm a resident now of Europe. Yeah. <laughs> that's fantastic. Um, and the these AirPods Maxes are, are awesome. They're like... Almost wearing nothing is the best way I describe them. I think that's their best feature because everybody was talking about how transparency mode was good, mm-hmm. but it's so much better than you think. Now I can just watch a YouTube video and keep the transparency mode on and just have a conversation with somebody else in the room from different places. And it's like, I'm not wearing anything on my head. I'm just hearing two sources and I just kind of have this background audio mm-hmm. playing. So I was also just like watching videos and doing other stuff while I had music playing and you kind of forget that you have them on your head because they don't, you don't really feel them after a while, mm-hmm. even though they're pretty heavy. But I think that's like the best feature. Well, one of the best features about them is that you can kind of do life and have something else playing without needing to switch back and forth and like not hear somebody. Yeah, for sure. So that's cool. Yeah, I, uh, I, I'm sure I have transparency modes like extra nice on those ones, but I have transparency mode on my headset too and... I use it when I like wear headphones out in like the city and stuff or like walking around places so that I can hear other people like talking to me or hearing like noises around me because it's like really kind of almost disorienting when it's like so quiet or like if I'm hiking I wear headphones but I keep it in transparency mode because mm-hmm. it's like I always have this like fear that somebody or something is like sneaking up on me. <laughs> you gotta hear them. <laughs> it, it's kind of funny. I have that same fear. It's not just you. Because <laughs> the transparency mode, um, in some ways, actually boosts audio, at least in my experience, a little bit. And so I can actually hear somewhat quieter sounds better with transparency mode on. So I can like hear people shuffling in the distance and stuff. It's kind of uh, a little bit creepy, but useful, mm. maybe. That is interesting. Yeah, maybe you have the you can turn on enhancement mode and crank up the volume and that would I mean I did hear that that's really good for people who are hard of hearing if there's some stuff that can amplify that but these are like just sound the same it sounds like there's nothing on your head which is weird and pretty cool I guess because the there's nine mics for the direction mm. of the sound so it actually plays it back in the right direction oh that's cool and it's that's supposed to be one of the best features I guess <clears throat> yeah but other than that they're great too I mean they're not like I don't think any Bluetooth headphones can compete with like an amplified set of $2,000 audiophile headphones, but these <laughs> probably are like somewhere in the gap in between just because they have so much computation and they're like quite clear and they have a really wide sound stage. So it sounds like 
things are coming from further away in the room mm-hmm. uh and you kind of get separation from all the instruments which if you like metal and hardcore music is like perfect yeah that's great that's really nice but that's it that's my that's my two cents <laughs> <laughs> the instant review of the airpods yeah. um <laughs> yeah my my like two-hour review uh what's new in life with you nick i heard that uh your house has had its second covid scare and is now covid free yeah we continue to be covid free um though the the entirety of my direct family is covid positive currently uh after an incident related to having a student over to their house to tutor (laughs) them uh they all contracted it was it carol chase no it was not carol chase (laughs) surprised you remember her name okay that's good (laughs) how could you forget someone with two first names and one first name that's like impossible (laughs) sorry i shouldn't be talking about this but um (laughs) that is too bad but i think your family is like basically indestructible yeah they're they're, all fine they're gonna be fine all fine everybody's fine it's i mean data suggests that people would would be fine uh i mean obviously covid's not something to be like taken lightly and my family and extended family have probably not taken good measures to (laughs) prevent that considering i i went from knowing nobody who had covid to like oh there's some people in my network who i've like heard got it to like my entire family and immediate like extended family all have it like 50 positive people <laughs> because of like these events whoa yeah um but they're all fine they so all yeah I, I i guess once it's in the bubble it's in the bubble yeah i guess okay that's great that's i mean usually statistics don't say that everybody recovers so i would say that that's very good yeah yeah it's true so yeah um yeah and over here i guess uh Stuff is great in some countries and not good in others, like the UK. So yeah, so some of the UK stories are like we'll have to wait and see how many people. Pretty concerning. Um, yeah, pretty bad. <laughs> I mean, obviously the media does things to fearmonger a bit, but like watching hospitals have to ration oxygen supplies is concerning. <laughs> that was the news that I got this week from the UK. Yes, to yeah. Um, similarly in California, they recently issued yeah. an order well, of like, Hey, uh, everybody who like, if you're a paramedic and you're operating an ambulance and somebody calls in to be taken to the hospital, you need to do an evaluation on them. And if they seem like they're not going to probably make it, you need to like not bring them here. So the effectively these kind of like almost do not resuscitate whoa. orders for some areas of California. That is wild and terrible. I hope that that gets under control soon. Yeah, I hope so too. I did hear that uh, LA is getting hit really hard from um, they have too many bodies and they're having to put them in the, I guess, wherever they can find now, which is just, it's a wild thing to think of America like that. But yeah, I guess this is uh, the last step before we get into the vaccines hopefully and then things will get somewhat back to normal yeah i uh i met my first or like uh, my my coworker was the first person i found who uh got the vaccine he works in a hospital um he's also a bit older 
And so, uh, yeah, he ended up getting one. So I know somebody now. <laughs> nice. <laughs> My mom is getting hers next week. Oh, that's cool. I just found out because she's a teacher. So, yeah. Sweet. Yeah. She used to go teach kids every single day. So I guess it makes sense. Teachers and hospital workers yeah. are like two people, a big risk. Um, but what are we, what we're talking about this week is architecture, right? That's what we decided is the, the final word. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this amorphous concept. I think architecture is, is the best, uh, probably way to kind of like abstract it and distill it or whatever at the same time. But yeah, we kind of played with the ideas of like, uh, shelter or like buildings or <laughs> we even talked about homelessness, but architecture is the word we settled on. Which is great because yeah. you have a lot to well, say about those that, are all, and uh, those can be part of it. I have a lot to learn about it. <laughs> yeah, and you—I'm sure you have a lot to say about real estate and living in a house in America. I mean, true. I am everybody's, a land. Everybody's lived in a house. <laughs> <laughs> we all have lots to say. Yeah, you are. You're you're a land and in between two other buildings owner. Yeah, which is awesome. Exactly. <laughs> which is an interesting state of architecture, <laughs> actually in some ways or uninteresting it is. depending on how you choose to look at it <laughs> let's just actually now that i say that it just reminds me of that neighbor that you knew that chris and i had that would keep banging on the walls oh, all night my gosh. we found out she was like a 15 year old girl who was just really angry and then she called the cops on us like three times for barely playing any music. The cops came and stood outside for an hour, didn't hear anything. And then they knocked on our door and we're like, well, we got called, but we didn't hear anything. And we're like, yeah, we're playing music. So <laughs> I don't know. I, I remember I did. That's, that's the kind of relationships you get to have when you share a wall. Yeah. I didn't actually believe you guys. I thought, I thought I'm like, oh yeah, Chris and Jordan are just these, you know, these rowdy young adults. Like I'm sure they're saying it's not loud, but it's like. 1am and it's like thumping hardcore music or something and then i was with you guys one night and we were playing like the postal service over like a quiet speaker and she started like banging on the wall again i was like yeah. okay this is this is a lie <laughs> uh yeah that's funny uh, we, yeah, we had a similar the best thing. part was only a couple days later I... oh go ahead i was just gonna say i had a similar thing with a shared neighbor instead of sideways though it was upstairs um normally it's your um your your neighbors below you that complain right um but mm -hmm. the person above us would complain sometimes when we like scooted chairs around or like we're too loud with like our pans <laughs> and uh she would like slam something <laughs> i'm assuming a broom like into the floor it just like you could hear it above us just like slamming into the floor Maybe it was just stomping with her foot or something. Oh, um, no. Yeah, that was a kind of weird. <laughs> living, living underneath somebody who's making a lot of noise is almost worse, because <laughs> <laughs> like they have complete control over everything that you hear, but you can't really do anything back because they're ten, twelve feet right. above your head. <laughs> yeah, that's weird. Um, I mean, this isn't. This is probably a good place to start, which is talking about the idea of just living inside of an enclosed space and like why we have this relationship with shelter in the first place. What was the beginnings of architecture? Um, it's pretty fascinating. The development um, I've taken 
some courses on the history of architecture. And back when humans were nomadic and hunters and gatherers, everything had to be constructed just out of temporary materials and then would Mm -hmm. usually just get left there. And so you wouldn't put a lot of time into putting it together. And you had to consider that the time it spent to make your shelter was time away from hunting and gathering and like potentially even getting a tiny bit of relaxation or like social time. So um, the idea of living in a structure was completely different. And then uh, fast forward an insane amount of time that now we just think of as like this blip, but it was like so long. Uh, And then we start getting cities, like little miniature gatherings and towns um, started making things out of clay and, putting some different types of roofs up and uh, making different structures out of still natural materials, but like your living space was more just a place to protect you from the weather and to store Mm -hmm. grain and have a place for your animals to sleep. And maybe if you're lucky, you get like a straw bed or something. It's a little more comfortable than just sleeping in nature, but who knows if it was actually more comfortable, maybe hunting hunter and gatherer people, sleeping on like the hard ground that was actually like really nice and we just can't think of it that way now yeah maybe so (laughs) i it's kind of interesting that you're talking about i guess i'd call it like bushcraft (laughs) because that's uh it's kind of like gotten this (laughs) i guess like resurgence lately or maybe it's just that i'm now exploring it so it feels like it's like a growing community of people but um ever since i started backpacking and you know staying out in the wilderness overnight uh it was kind of like the same concept uh I mean, is it more efficient to, like, carry this stuff with you or, like, use materials in that place that you go to, like, craft little temporary shelters? And there's a lot of people who, right. not 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 the majority, but there's a lot of people who choose to do the second option, which is to go bushcrafting or craft little shelters when they backpack or camp. And you see those like, kind of pop up and appear here in the Wasatch Range and mountains of Utah because we have a pretty active outdoor community and we have, like, pretty good environment for them we have all these pine trees and stuff which are like here at least one of the kind of best materials to make um, little temporary shelters out of Uh, but it's interesting to think about how many different societies must have kind of used the materials around them i guess that they had at the time to uh, create those types of things yeah it's it's kind of cool that there were so many different shapes and types of structures that were also influenced by the materials i think my one of my favorite things is the fact that igloos were not only just like used here and there but they were Mm -hmm. permanent living places and there was always a fireplace in the middle and everybody would go in there and hang out after uh, they would go out hunting and everything and that must have been such a cool experience to be like out in the cold and the frigid and you're like doing things all day and working out and then you come back and you just like relax and eat some food by this central fireplace with like 20 other people sitting around Mm -hmm. it out in the wilderness i can't even imagine like almost nobody in the modern world will ever get to experience that oh i know it's too bad (laughs) i i I do have to throw a bone to uh boy scouts uh because i think they led to they got me to experience some things like that uh which i think like you said are are kind of rare because i did actually get to experience the like go do snow work all day and like work in the snow and like uh whatever and then come back and have like a central fire on this like snowy lake and just like hang Mm -hmm. out eat dinner with 20 to 30 people uh and i think it was like yeah it's definitely community building yeah i 
I did some similar stuff when I was younger as a scout too, and just like out on my own, but it's really hard to get that many people out. Yeah. So like those scout camps and stuff are usually the only way you're yeah, going to experience sure. that. Um, but yeah, that's like this concept as well of being connected with nature and having your architecture be a facilitator between those two things um, or be perhaps even a part of nature and just co coinciding with it. And then we really moved away from that as soon as we started um, becoming agriculturalists and finding ways to grow crops and store food. And then everything had to be more permanent. And so um, it was harder to integrate with nature because nature would destroy our our holdings of mm-hmm. grain and other things. And so uh, there was a little bit more of a, an idea for like larger communities to grow and stave off both predators and other human beings um, and to store greater, I guess, areas of wealth or types of wealth within the walls of their city and their, their buildings. And so um, I think those two concepts were the main things that, that kind of transported us into a new idea of architecture. And then um, it was more of like a, a safety thing, but also it became a, a personal area and it was more intimate. And so that wasn't, wasn't, built to be a social mm-hmm. of a of a construct anymore everybody had like a, a individual area or an individual room um and then you had like central public spaces but a lot of those became almost like the the outdoor of the indoors because there would be outdoor sure. walls to the city or whatever and then you would have the outdoor public areas and squares and then everybody would have indoor public areas and then indoor indoor which is like your personal space your personal room and so this these extra divisions of space um really kind of drove this idea of separating ourselves from nature and uh i think that's also why we started really pushing to domesticate certain animals like dogs because we we started missing some of that (laughs) wild connection and so like the answer to that was to just take it some of it in and you know pot plants and um start doing different craft with uh, outdoor things, uh, making vessels that are for art and other purposes because we got more time and we're like trying to find this connection again. Um, and that, that phase like led to all the trading and everything as well, because we had more reason to store and trade things and get different types Mm -hmm. of wealth. Uh, and that was like before architecture was really architecture and was trying to find its footing. But I think that transition is really important to state because, like that was the longest period of time was before cities mm-hmm. still. Um, and we're trying to come back to that now. I think if anything over the last 30 years, we've just been pushing to come back to this idea of living with nature and integrating nature into our spaces. But America is failing. <laughs> like it's not even trying. Um, there's only a few countries that are really doing well at it. Japan is one of them. Um, you know, Singapore is doing a good job. There's some places in Europe, but for the most part, like, I would say 80% of the world is still stuck in the live inside of a box of your own personal space, separate yourself from everyone and have very little public interaction. That's not literally outside Mm -hmm. of the building. Um, when there's a few countries now that are trying to put, um, trees and public walking space and everything inside of your living space so that you just can't get away from it. Um, there's some really cool examples of like this metabolist idea, but, transitioning to that there's like a whole bunch of interesting history we can go through too if if we want to talk about it um like from italian architects and other movements within architecture but i'm also curious to hear what you think 
about like where architecture started and, and kind of the concept of what it was and how do you think about it now in your own personal terms? Because this is something that you and I are, are probably have like a vast different experience on. Like, what do you think about, what do you think about your house and like the architecture there? Do you do, or do you even think about it very often? Yeah. Is it just um, I, I have so many things to say to everything you just said. Um, I, the first comment I have to make, which is in stark contrast to the kind of loftiness of this conversation, but I think it's kind of interesting actually is, is you kind of talked about this like accumulation of wealth in a society as something that allows people to start thinking a little less communally and a little more individually. And they start having their own belongings and own spaces. And your, your general description of kind of like the evolution of architecture is I think really funny because, or not funny overall, but like, it relates funnily to uh, Minecraft, which is a game that I think a lot of people know and love. Um, I, for people who haven't played it, I mean, the premise of the game is basically you're like mining for and finding resources. And uh, to do that, basically, effectively, you kind of have to build up like better and better tools and spaces and like um, on personal resources as you go throughout the game. But if you ever play it with a new group of players, they, they always do this like same evolutionary pattern. Uh, First off in the game, uh, during the daytime everything's safe, but at night, like darkness falls and like monsters come out and it's dangerous. So you need shelter. And everybody starts and their first shelter is always like a little cave or a little hole that they dig in the ground. And it's like made out of the environment and super integrated into nature. And as you start to like accumulate more resources, you start to build houses out of some of like the early resources that kind of mimic nature. You have like wood and you're kind of maybe using some of the hillside for your house. And you all like live together because that's all the resources your little community has. And as you start to like mine the earth and like take the natural resources from the place that you started, you usually people start building their own separate houses and then they build walls around their community. And it's just like, it's like this rapid simulation of everything Jordan just talked about, which I think is just, <laughs> it's, it's really perfect. And I, maybe it's just because I've I actually played Minecraft again for the first time the other day and it's just like fresh in my mind, but. I thought that was kind of a, a good parallel. Uh, but to get to your question, my thoughts on architecture and the space I live in, do I think about the architecture of my house? Um, I think five five to ten years ago, I, I basically would have said no. Um, I was like this kind of like ultra-practical function over form in every way kind of person. And I still have aspects of that, I think, in my personality. But I've started to realize how important it is to have things around you that you like find beautiful. And that's not to say that architecture or whatever this question you're asking me is just about like ornamentation and decoration. Um, but I think because of that kind of like attitude, I didn't really like think about the space I lived in so much. I was just like, okay, I have a place to put my stuff and there's a box around me that keeps the rain away and like, I, like whatever. Um, and it's like pretty close to where yeah. I want to be. Um, or it was a good deal, or whatever the case is. Um, but I think I've really started to appreciate more, both like valuing how I kind of like decorate and like how my space is organized and where things are like functional and useful and efficient. Um, I've thought a lot more about like how my space is related to the outside world. So um, right now I live, as Jordan hinted at the beginning of this episode, in a, a townhome or like a row house, I think they're called in other places, but effectively, uh, my home is like one of six homes that are side by side in like a, a, a row of like six homes in this community. And then there's a bunch of those like six home units throughout my community. And so I share walls both on the kind of like left and right side of my house with my neighbors. 
but I have like a clear view out of my back window and out of my front door to like my own little backyard and my own little front yard. Um, and so I think I've started to value a lot more, like you said, the connection to nature. So the next house that I move into, I think that's like one of my like priority number ones is getting a home that like sits closer to like larger natural spaces. I would love like a bigger backyard or have a backyard that kind of like runs up into uh, the mountains here in Utah. Um, I want to be able to see outside nature from more places in my house. Uh, I definitely have like a lot of, basically, I guess what I'm trying to say is I have like a lot of, a lot better definition, I guess, of like kind of the architecture and design of the house, both inside and outside now that I want compared to like when I first moved into here. Um, so yeah, I think that that viewpoint has kind of changed and it's been influenced by people like you. Um, also another friend of mine who, uh, has a house that he's like currently he's doing a lot of revamping work on and it's kind of cool to see him make decisions that just like perfectly suit his personality and i i want that more <laughs> yeah i mean that's <laughs> that's great i think that that's one of the the things that i wish for everyone that's that's i feel like that may, might even be my one of my main life missions is to give everybody the conscious um, awareness of how their space affects them and to help them change that space and to be to be something that inspires them and makes mm -hmm. them feel good because it really makes a huge difference um, and a lot of the architecture that exists in the world is only built for profit and you can even see this from like the smallest scale of real estate from investors who are just buying rentals and they don't care to make any improvements and they just want to make them as boring as possible because they just mm -hmm. want to make money and they don't care about the person who's renting their space. And I think that's like the biggest crime <laughs> to humanity um, is not caring about like how you're potentially affecting another person's life um, through something mm -hmm. that you're doing uh, just for your own gains, especially is kind of like, I mean, I think it's fine to have real estate and to have rental properties, but I think you should really be concerned about your, tenants and like think about how things affect their life um but as a personal level as well like you're saying uh the space that you live in you you don't really understand how much it affects your life until you go into another space that's mm -hmm. better for you that speaks more to you or like has a better right. reflection of you and then it's like the most eye-opening experience um but if you don't let yourself try to experience those things or like think about them then you could easily just become miserable living in a place that you don't like. And I've gone through that same thing in my life, like living in a basement um, room when I've lived in share houses and stuff. And I just felt like really down compared to living up higher or having more windows or like having a cleaner uh, aesthetic or less different types of materials. And like for me, I just really hate having lots of little finishes, like tons of molding and trim. And there's like gaps in between things in the architecture with like the carpet and the walls or whatever, if there's carpet or like the hardwood has um, problems and there's so many little things that like, there's so many layers in the walls. There's so many extra little details that don't mm -hmm. line up and don't make sense. And like, all of this is just extra stuff over the top that doesn't need to be there when you could just be living with just a brutalist, simple structure that is just like clean and perfect. And it just has this really nice warm feeling such as living in like a timber constructed, um, building like japan has a lot of modern timber architecture and it just feels so great in there because you just feel surrounded by nature i mean you have this direct connection to these trees and they're just unfinished just perfect golden like pine or, or oak mm. or whatever they are um and so like just these simple things the material and the 
the shape and the, the flow of the house and like the the details on things and the things you put in that house and what the floor is like all of this stuff makes such a big difference um to your mental uh i guess both both your mental awareness of um what kind of space you like to be in and also uh how you want to interact with that space and like feel inside of that that space because i don't know about you but i can think of certain rooms even if they're in like Mm -hmm. a public like library or something right there's certain places that i can sit and i just feel my mood pick up immediately it's like listening to a certain song right i mean you you must have some similar oh yeah definitely and i i like that you mentioned that like without subjecting yourself or kind of exploring other spaces it can be easy to think that the space that you have is suited for you or is sufficient or whatever and I don't know. I don't want to get too caught up in like, I mean, there's this whole concept of like lifestyle creep and you just always want the better thing or whatever, but it doesn't necessarily have to be more extravagant or more costly to be better suited for you. And I I think to that point, I mentioned that you were an influence on me kind of thinking about my space more. Uh, But I think the like truthful, like defining moment for me was I I follow this, uh, some forum where people post pictures of their like um, studios and I saw this guy post a picture mm-hmm. of his home studio that was just like this beautiful, clean home studio, just like not cluttered, perfect organization for what's normally like a messy cable management horror house. <laughs> um, and it, this is not practical for most studios because you don't want the reverberations. But on the left side of the studio is this wall that overlooked this guy's backyard, which is just like this flat, grassy area, some light snow onto it into this like forest. And it was just, I saw that and I was like, that is that is what i want um and now that i've like thought about it more i think i've been able to make changes in my space that make me feel a little bit more that way and feel a bit better and i spend time in parts of my house that i've realized that like you said have that kind of like positive effect on my mood yeah it's really great i wish that everybody could take the time to think about it and and put some plans into place i was looking at some properties in salt lake the other day just to see what was out there right now and there's this one like surrounded by what almost looks like rainforest trees uh right by this river in uh it's just just um sort of north of ninth and ninth a little bit Mm um it's like in the perfect location and the spot for the house that you can build is is just couldn't get better and like everything that all your views would just be these beautiful greenery, like nice tropical looking mm-hmm. leaves everywhere. Um, that's, that's the kind of discovery, you know, when you make a decision between that and like building on just a plain dirt lot with like a brown brick building across the road. I mean, just think about the difference of that. It's crazy how big of a difference that could make on, on your overall mm-hmm. mental health. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah. I mean, exposure to nature as psychologists have been determining over the last 50 years is just so critical for humans and being able to have like a repeated dose of that just in your living space or from your living space is like such a big advantage rather than having to like go out of your house to seek it and um i think more people could do more to incorporate that even in kind of like busy or dense areas because i mean that place that you're describing in salt lake is not some like open forested land like i mean that's like in the middle of the city but you can still like find those kind of like reserves i guess yeah and um also kind of on this note of living 
next to greenery or at least living next to uh, a juxtaposition with nature, there's a really cool way that um, a lot of communities are building. They're not really like apartments or homes or townhomes or anything in between. So it's its own thing. Uh, but there's there's this new movement for like social living metabolist, um, I guess, architectural areas in uh, different places, mostly Japan. And I think Switzerland has a few of them now. But basically, they're just small rooms that are separate structures and they have different purposes and everybody shares all of them. And there's walkways, like usually winding up and down really cool, uh, like, bridges in different places and there's trees everywhere and sort of like get from your Mm -hmm. room which is just its own separate building i guess to the bathroom or to the kitchen or to the library or like the the public workout room or whatever you have to go walk past nature or or like walk Mm -hmm. outside on these paths and, and like cross other people's paths and see them and say hi or whatever and everybody takes care of the plants um and then you kind of delegate different tasks to different people on rotation if you want to, depending on Mm -hmm. how the space works. Um, But I just really like that idea of living and feels more like a community. And it also brings you a better connection with the architecture around you because you have a different relationship with different spaces and you can get surprised by um, different people and things that you find out there. So that's, that's like my, my preferred way of pushing architecture now because it's very adaptive as well. Like people can come and go and you can find different ways to use that. And you can have your own private bathroom and kitchen or whatever, if you want to, you don't have to have the public one, but it is there if you want Mm -hmm. to be there and go to events or whatever, but you still have your private space. And like, there's only one wall between you and nature and you and everybody else, instead of, you know, three divisions of space, which happens a lot of the time in these bigger architectural Right. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) obviously people deep in apartment buildings in a city, it can become even more, sequestered but even in my area like it's great that my community in utah we have a lot of urban sprawl so we have a lot of kind of like open space still but even in my community it's like i have my house but then i have like a a gated community that i live in that gated community is kind of in a suburb which is like obviously full of some nice nature and stuff but it's still quite like separated from maybe the rest of the people or the rest of the city so there's there's definitely these degrees of separation um there's a word (laughs) you've used a few times that i don't know uh metabolist what is what does this mean in terms of architecture? So that's a it well it means different things yeah. in biology than it does in architecture right. to some degree, but they have like very similar okay. concepts, I would say. So uh metabolist architecture started as a movement in Japan and this quickly spread to some other locations in the world, but uh it wasn't like the late sixties, early seventies is when this started and the idea was uh to create architecture that would both adapt and update itself uh, as the times changed and the users changed. So a really good example of this uh, was the Nakajin capsule um, tower, which was basically this big, huge pole coming out of the ground that a bunch of little mm-hmm. pod rooms would, could stick into. And you could you can take them out and put new ones in so they could always be updated. Um, and that central pole could just have other things updated into it as it needed to with, with the fixings that would come in and mm-hmm. connect to those pods. Um, so that was like one very modular version of, of um, metabolist architecture. But then there were also individual homes that were made this way as well. Uh, one of them that's really fascinating from this uh, Japanese architect was 
basically just two concrete slabs, one one mm-hmm. lower and one higher, and there was room underneath the, the lower one because it was sort of built on a hill. And then there's just a huge curtain Whoa. sheet that, that hangs down from the top one that wraps around. And then uh, in the bottom floor, there's a square cut out of the concrete, and they're hanging underneath that is uh, this, like, baby's room or baby's carriage which was kind of open with some air to come into it um and so the whole house the idea of the whole house was to to be so that it could change later if you needed to update anything but for then it was made to have like one child and two parents just living in a completely open space with no walls and just like a curtain uh to help separate them from the outside and then just these slabs of concrete and so uh, if anybody wanted to like later build on top of that or um, change that hole into something else or whatever, like the idea was to keep it very base and minimal and then be able to, to change and update as you go. And so that's like a different twist where it's not as modular. It's not like you can just plug and play Lego bricks into it like you could with the Nakajin sure. tower. But there's there's been lots of explorations of metabolist architecture. And the one of the newer ones is these like, changing spaces where different rooms can become different things for people in a in a like social group living on one or two acres of land i i, I really like that concept because it also seems a lot more uh sustainable in a way i think it makes better use of spaces over a longer period because that's one of the challenges right now right i mean do-it-yourself home renovation shows have been a hit for quite a while now and obviously you can do some great things even with like traditional <laughs> like drywall and whatever framing architecture, but it's so much more effort. And really you have to have to, in some ways, knock the structure down, even if it's just internal portions of the structure to like redo things and renovating and changing spaces in like a larger home usually means that you have to change the spaces next to them or like be very careful to not like encroach on them as you're doing renovations and um, all in all, like changing space to suit you is hard. Um, which is why people, I think, usually yeah. view it as a search rather than like a construction or change because it's sometimes easier to go find a space that suits you better than try to like change your own um, just because of how difficult it is. So I, I, I like that idea. I think about this, like all these kind of like separate little individual structures. Like if you just want to like remove one of those, you don't have to disturb any of the other ones near it. Or if you want to like change that room uh, drastically, you're not like impinging on or like disabling the other rooms or uh, people so i think that's a that's a nice concept for sure yeah it's i think that uh, you hit the nail on the head with the drywall and interior wood being framing and i don't know all these extra little finishes i think the western or even more so i should say american style of architecture is completely flawed and broken in so many ways um it's just made out of non-durable materials that are going to rot and go bad and then there's so many little details and like the construction of it is only somewhat exact i'm talking mostly about Mm -hmm. residential spaces here but it applies to other other buildings as well but yeah they're there's just not an easy way to modify or change it without waste. And also the way that it's put together is not meant to last more than 50 years. Uh, And not that buildings need to last more than 50 years. I mean, that's completely depends on location and purpose and whatever, because you you can't expect everything to last, but you can build a, a simple, beautiful, brutalist 
bare bones structure that could be added onto later. And that part of the structure doesn't need to change mm. for hundreds of years, thousand years, maybe. I mean, there's such beautiful brutalist architecture in um, Brazil that even now is just thought of as like the most groundbreaking, amazing forms. And they're, they were made mm-hmm. in the early fifties and they're, they look like they were not made mm-hmm. until 2030. I mean, they're just beautiful. And like sitting in there and surrounded by nature out there as well. And this beautiful concrete structure. And there's like different parts with wood in some of them. And uh, I don't know. I just think about this, that only the architects, only the people who thought about building these structures uh, put in the effort and time to do it because I guess because the monetary drive for people to make cheap living at the cheapest cost is just more than they have morals to get over. And I, I find that a, a terrible <laughs> sin of humanity. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I mean, a lot of things are designed in general, like not even just architecture for the kind of like short term vision of them. And while I can understand it to some extent, um, I I think more focus should be put on kind of enduring and sustainable like systems. And if you think about architecture, your home is like a system that can be modified or added to update with the times and find the components of it that can stay that are high quality and like good anchor points, I guess, for the home. Um, that seems like a, a, a better way to organize things. Yeah, there's just a lot of there's a lot of hurdles in different locations, such as the U.S., because the code is mm. so strict. And for some reason, there's only one accepted way to build, unless you're going to build like a very contemporary structure, and then you have to get special permission to do mm-hmm. that, which is possible. But that extra hassle is usually too much of a barrier for people to think about, I guess. But it blows my mind because if you're going to live, if you're going to build one house and that's probably going to be your house your whole life, for, which mm-hmm. is most people's case, like, why would you not make it perfect? Why would you not make it exactly how you want? You only get one chance. You're going to die <laughs> in this house. Make it how you want it. Don't just like let it be how everything else is that you've yeah. ever known your whole life. It just doesn't make sense to me. Like that is the most no brainer thing to do would be to spend a little extra money and a little extra time to make the space yeah. perfect. for uh, you. I, I think that that argument is what has convinced me that, like the next house that I get needs to be either I'm going to find one that's somehow very perfect by miracle, or it needs to be made <laughs> by me. Uh, yeah. Cause I think the next house I move into very well could be the like final house <laughs> of mine. And it, yeah, it, I want it to be perfect. I mean, you spend so much of your life in your house, especially now if more people are remote working and stuff, there's even more time spent inside your house. Just like, it needs to be an extension yeah. of you in a lot of ways. Yeah. And honestly, you can't go wrong. I mean, as long as you're able to build it, mm-hmm. you'll be okay. <laughs> like spending a little extra is definitely going to be worth it in the long run. There's yeah. just no question about it. Um, so yeah, I, I completely agree. I, and I guess we can get back to the, back to the history timeline oh, really quickly. Yes, yes. I just wanted to, to talk about a, f- a few more quick points because they're falling in line with where we are now. Um, we're talking about personalized space and how you should care about it. Um, but this exploration in architecture really started in Italy. Um, and there was like geometry and math becoming more of a movement, uh, with an intellectual thought. And it really spread into architecture, both as a, a challenge into technicalities Mm -hmm. of what was possible and also 
as an exploration into like art and form and um, how space relates to the human, both in scale of like the size of human beings to the scale of mm. the space they're in. And also because um, they're finding these different ratios and comparing them and seeing how uh, all of that can reflect within different details. But also uh, because churches and cathedrals were so prevalent, um, the budget from the government and the state going into that because the state and church weren't really separated um, was just massive. And so the, there was room to play and there was room to explore and make, make extravagance because uh, that really built dominance and power. Uh, so rather than having a big mm. state capitol building, you had a big massive church that was just so overwhelmingly beautiful and uh, intricately put together with materials that seemed impossible to move on onto this site and put into such a configuration that it must have been uh, helped by the mm, hand of God, for example. That's interesting. And so, like, the, <laughs> yeah, this grandiose, uh, which, and I've been to some of these amazing structures in Italy and like they are completely mm-hmm. mind blowing that that same yeah, effect yeah, still true. holds true today <laughs> when you go in there it's like what I'm in a room with like a 120 foot ceiling and there's just 20 different type types of marble just like mm-hmm. perfectly cut and put into these um beautiful like arches and domes going up to hold this impossible ceiling that doesn't make sense with this uh painting in it that looks like it was made by a master and it's so big that it must have taken 20 years to complete like all these things are true uh and it doesn't make it any more or less like amazing to to just consider the fact that that had happened many times over multiple generations as well or like it would take uh 200 300 years to complete some of these structures and so they would just build them step by step and you get to see little details from every craftsman who would um make their little chiseled stone section for example um and this was really cool but it also gave uh a lot of the bigger thinkers um more room to play and do different uh types of architectural exploration and start coming up with different movements within architecture and so like i think gothic architecture is one of the most beautiful you can see there's it's basically the only type of architecture that is just intricate detail over intricate detail and it still looks Mm -hmm. perfect and amazing like normally if there's more details things Mm -hmm. start looking terrible but gothic architecture is just takes simple stone and just carves beautiful long lines and uh intricate things into these lines and, and sculpture into it. And, and it hides all of this perfectly to just become this form that is very symmetrical, but still has right. asymmetrical little like features. It's homogeneously complex um, or something. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Controlled chaos, but like very controlled yeah. and beautiful chaos. Um, <laughs> and so also there were some really good feats about how to change the load bearing aspects of those structures. And so these like big pillars that come up, um, they could push out these really heavy stone ceilings um, in interesting ways by splitting out the load multiple times across um, these different pillars that went up. And learning about how all that load bearing works is really, really cool too. If you ever want to like search up on it, how Gothic uh, structures. My, my experience with load bearing is watching um, like uh, the the home improvement shows, and like invariably the the crisis that arrives in every episode when people are uh, renovating is like is that a load bearing wall? 
And the contractor's like, nah, dude, don't worry about it. And then they do it, and it is a load-bearing <laughs> wall, and there's this additional cost, and there's yeah. a crisis. Uh, <laughs> Again, another reason why these these uh, wood, <laughs> wood-built walls are just terrible, because they hide all the load-bearing aspects, and you don't know until you break the wall open. It's ridiculous. <laughs> it's bad. Uh, yeah, if you don't have the plans to your house, good luck trying to figure out where the load-bearing walls are. Yeah, like, exactly. it's guesswork. But the gothics, it's clear. Those columns, load-bearing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's nothing hiding anything. You know where it's going. Um, so anyway, we, we move mm-hmm. past that phase, right? And then uh, we start getting into some really interesting stuff because uh, architecture starts taking on this very minimalist approach and we we sort of move from it just being a big hierarchical system where they're, they're trying to suppress any, uh, I guess, disobedience, yeah. like to the church Dominating or the state or whatever. This is why there's, yeah. I mean, this is why columns were made in, in Greek architecture was to, mm-hmm. to show power and prowess, like, cause they're just overwhelming and they, they look very, um, menacing. And then, uh, big churches and domes and everything were looking extravagant and too beautiful to be real. Um, too large to be contended with. Uh, but then we move into these like minimalist movements uh, and I'm skipping <laughs> a lot of time here, obviously, but um, the, I think it's, it's really cool that the like Le Cabousier is a very, maybe the most famous architect mm-hmm. of all time. And he really wanted to push for this different world of architecture where uh, there's just flat, clean lines um, everywhere. And everything is supposed to be, just a simple base box or a simple base structure and you put the life into it or you pick your few accessories and put them into it. Um, and the architecture is invisible to you because it's so clean and beautiful and like mm-hmm. limited, but it can also be very playful and fun at the same time. And I think this is where like he succeeded in a lot of ways because there's a few different places that he made that were like made the, the building feel alive, like a, there's a building where you pull this lever and then the front door kind of swings open, but sometimes it doesn't work and it's like really quirky and strange. And there's little details like that all throughout the house. There's a door that's just a circle and you have to like push it and then it swings and you can mm-hmm. walk through either side, uh, which is, which is fun. And then you push it closed again and it's like, looks like an, an art feature on your wall. So you don't really sure. know there's a door there. Um, yeah. Little things like this secret, secret uh, stairways and stuff there. There's lots of interesting explorations um within these clean forms uh and i think this really helps to open up the idea of what architecture is and why we interact with it in the way that we do and how it affects our lives like this is when this really started to happen because it was no longer about intricate detail to the to the max component like as the art movements were at the time but then everything became more of an exploration with an interaction in your space and uh like a free flow of, of a simple form that didn't take away from your life, which a lot of architecture does in many ways. Um, and architects like Frank Lloyd Wright and uh, uh, Buckminster Fuller uh, had some really interesting visions. Those are mm-hmm. two really famous American architects. And they they started exploring different ideas with from that, that kind of base point, I would say. Like Frank Lloyd Wright liked Japanese influence and design, like very low, clean lines. Um, And he was very famous for for making these like long, beautiful rooms with with many straight lines 
and uh, like long, tall, straight wooden furniture. So he'd always design his own furniture in his places to, to fit in with the aesthetic so that you couldn't really like take away from the whole feeling of the space, mm-hmm. which was quite interesting. Um, and Buckminster Fuller was doing some similar things, but making, uh, writing, writing quite a few, uh, I think, very effective papers and books about how we are on like the spaceship Earth and it is cultivating us. Uh, and the architecture needs to um, like speak from the forms of the earth and follow mm-hmm. nature in many different ways. So he's famous for inventing um, right. the buckyball, as as it's called, which is like the ge- geodesic domes. And he also made these uh, inflatable concrete homes that would come up in within uh, 10 hours. So this like big balloon would expand that they would blow up on site and then they would pour this uh, quick-drying concrete form Whoa. over the top and then uh, space out the inside, and they would put up an entire um, house within 10 hours. And so the military commissioned a bunch of these, and he would uh, just go on site, and there'd be like 300 homes built in a couple days, which is just amazing. Um, so he was really thinking about how to maximize use the smallest amount of natural materials and uh, use forms already found within nature and like utilize geometry in different ways. And... I think that like line of thought was great and it had a lot of power and like with Frank Lloyd Mm -hmm. Wright becoming so famous and making so many uh, uh, amazing buildings in America and other, in other countries as well, there was like this strong movement that was going and architecture was becoming like well-known and mainstream and people were commissioning those bigger architects Mm -hmm. to make homes for them, which was beautiful. Some of those homes you can buy now for a couple hundred thousand dollars and they're still amazing. Um, But I think it's kind of been dying off and now there's this division between because of the yeah. economics and like the pace right. of life. Now we're just stuck with like, I, people either want to live in a cheap, quick place that looks pretty nice and is going to last for, for five years, 10 years. Cause they don't care because mm-hmm. they're going to move after that. And then there's a very slim number of people in the world who care deeply about their space and, and what it's like and want to think about the, the actual construction and development of it and design of it. Um, and they want to work with an architect or work with people who have a vision in this. And then architects on the flip side of this are usually being commissioned to, to do some works here or there and making some residential spaces, which is great. But there aren't really that I know of passionate architects who want to change the way that we think about building space on mass and find the best solution between like what people have as tools for exploration to make mm-hmm. their own space. Uh, there's been some of this with 3D printing sure. homes and designing things a little bit differently, but not really in a modular sense. And so, like, yeah, that's what I want to do with my life is, like, make this modular system where it can be deconstructed and reconstructed and uh, altered to exactly what you want with your materials. Um, and I think that's kind of where the future is going to be. But right now we're stuck in this cheap, quick, uh, living for a very temporary amount of time set of right. spaces so yeah sorry that was <laughs> no, a long good way. um <laughs> it, uh, one of the points i kind of thought of while you were talking is uh, i think you you mentioned architects kind of like trying to create homes where the architecture uh it, it kind of fades away because it's so like clean and so minimal that like it's what you put in it that like matters and defines it and that's the bc you said um whereas like some architects have made things that are more grandiose which you talked about in the gothic era but also i mean they're still like modern kind of like grandiose over the top architecture today as well and it's kind of interesting to see the contrast between those because i would say 
most architecture that we experience, whether it's like this very standard American home I live in, um, or even kind of like slightly more public uh, places like offices and stuff, um, typically have these, I would, I call them minimal, not in like the kind of like true minimalist, like, oh, there's so few materials in here and all the lines are like clean and there's like whatever, hardly any like butted up finishes, but they're it's kind of like minimum effort required, right? To like get the space to be like functional with like giving it like this, a small amount of ornamentation, like these standard four panel doors and stuff. Um, and so I think it's interesting to kind of see the contrast between the two of those, because that over the tarp architecture is like so rare and it's almost seems like there's a division there. There's not as much stuff that fits like on the in-between of those scales. You have these like really grandiose buildings and like really weird things. And then you have these like really, really ordinary things. And it'd be great to kind of see more stuff that occupied that like middle space that wasn't like grandiose um, uh, or extravagant or I don't even know what you want to call it. <laughs> um, but also like is better than an improvement yeah. on the, I guess the existing designs. It is, well, yeah, that's a really interesting point, too, because there was, like, a, a craftsman movement as well mm. in architecture. There's actually a lot of cool places in Salt Lake that you can go visit if you want to ever go take some tours. Uh, the McCune Mansion is a really awesome one. And basically, craftsmen were just hired to come in and, like, make different parts of the house, and they would just build it as they went a lot of the time. Or, like, they would have a grand outlay, but they would have the craftsmen kind of put their touch and do their own way of making everything. And so... That grandiosa was was like handmade, nice finishes and interesting elements of the house that made it really quirky and um, picturesque, and that you would find different uh, flows of artist artistic movements and energy from different parts of the house as you went mm -hmm. through it or different rooms. Um, but the reason why I think that's lost now and why I think your comparison like of this grandiosa from the now to the past, well, the now grandiosa is nothing like if we compare it to, to like handcrafted rooms and like what intricacy meant mm -hmm. 200 years ago, it's a joke. What we think intricate is now there's a reason why, um, it's very, very rare to find like a realist oil painter anymore who is like at the scale and level of what we find from the Renaissance period. Uh, it just doesn't happen right. or it's very rare because it's so difficult to master a craft like that and to like, think about it enough to care about it enough because there's so many distractions yeah. I think in life. Um, so like the, yeah, the idea of extravagant now, I just don't think even exists on the same scale. Like we, we, we don't, we can't even sure. get into the old scale anymore. Yeah. It's just yeah. gone. I, yeah. I don't know many, <laughs> uh, Gothic stone sculptures, <laughs> sculptors. <laughs> no, nobody I know has dedicated their life to chiseling small intricate works in stone. Um, which is strange it is kind of weird because uh arguably there's less of a reason like there's there there's more reason for that craft to exist or at least it seems like it'd be easier to support that craft now than it would in the past uh minus like the changing mm -hmm. i guess cultural use of that type of work like you were saying for like power and dominance of the church or the state uh we do that in different ways now uh, but yeah, but, but it's an, an art, art form, form and we have like there's so much space for it. leisure time in some ways, or at least society overall has like more resources. So we should be able to dedicate more towards like beautification and art over time. So it's kind of like weird to see that like high end art die off. That's pretty strange. 
Yeah, it is. I agree. I think it's really weird. But when I do see it, I'm just amazed. Like there's a there was an exhibit I went to in London um, where this rug maker had uh, I think she was from Iran or Iraq and she had made this just mind blowing like 30 by 120 foot rug that was so intricate. And it was like. I mean, it was unbelievable. It, It was one of those things where you you could look at this and just not imagine ever being able to make yeah. it in your entire life. Like if you, if you sat down as like a 10 year old kid and thought I'm going to make this and like plan it out and do everything that you maybe yeah. wouldn't finish by the time you're dead. It's like that, that overwhelming and that kind of craft only exists in the, in the art mm-hmm. world anymore. I mean, there's just no reason for it anymore outside of that because mass production has taken over, include taken over architecture as well in many ways, but in mm-hmm. a bad way, I would say, um, and yeah, like it doesn't need to be intricate in that way that it needs to feel impossible to make, but it should be intricate in the design of it, right? Like the design mm-hmm. should be intricate that in, and when I say intricate, I mean like the design should be thought out and it should be have time allocated to it for the mm-hmm. design process. That's where the, that's what intricacy means in this case. Um, and yeah, I, I just need to find a way to like, get that message out and make people think about it. I think everybody should. Hopefully having this conversation helps. <laughs> yeah. To get helps. started. So your your dream your dream goal, we talked about it a little bit in the dreams episode. Um we're also talking about it now. Is this um modular architecture system that lets individuals kind of like reorganize their space. Uh Maybe, can you like expand on that a little more? Like, does this include like the outside walls of their home, or are these like slidable inside walls? Like, what what are you, what are you kind of imagining for this type of design? Yeah, well, I have I've designed this system, which could adapt and like mm-hmm. evolve over time. But for now, I have I have it designed, and I'm not going to go too much too much in the details because yeah, I don't sure. have it like completely flushed out or pant yeah also that whatever, don't, but don't spoil basically, any future patents you have one year after this episode yeah to, i won't uh, I, po- <laughs> patent assistant i won't give out my millimeter measurements only my uh yeah. my foot um <laughs> but basically it's a system where there are specific sized panels and right now i'm using shipping containers as the the outer shells but of course you could um build any kind of shell network and the the interior system would fit into it but um, for now, I'm using shipping containers because they're widely available and cheap. Uh, there's many extra sitting around. And so you put up these paneled uh, panels inside, which are three, five inches thick, made out of basically any material you want that is somewhat thermally um, insulating and uh, somewhat structurally sound, but they could also just have like mm-hmm. a steel backing or something. Um, and so they are just the plain material. So let's say you have like wood one uh almost like a woodbound table and you put those up inside uh and they stick together with this peg system uh and they lock into place completely within the interior of the container and they they won't move around because they're all locked into one another including the ceiling um and so you can put in partitions of walls into that as well and then basically you can build out this container into any room configuration that you want you could butt up two containers and cut the walls out of them. And then you can, you know, subdivide within that if you'd like to do that. Uh, And then those themselves have their own system for hanging 
shelves or uh, desks or um, even like you can run plumbing Mm -hmm. along the walls in a very brutalist way. Uh, And so you can uh, have these systems that can adapt and hold anything in them and you can install and like ad hoc in whatever you want. It's, it's the definition of modular in that you can even like third party, make your own stuff that fits into the system because Mm -hmm. it's so adaptable. Um, And I think that is the one uh, characterization of modularity that really gets missed when people talk about modular systems. Like if your system can't adapt somebody making something else or a third party making something else and plugging into your system, it's not actually modular mm-hmm. because it's self-contained. And uh, yeah, it's this like looks over a lot of modularity, whatever, I think. I guess in that definition. Yeah, it, exactly. If if there's if the barrier to entry to, to create uh, a, a, a something else to fit into the system is too high, then it's, it's not truly modular. Um, something that's overlooked by many designers. But anyway, uh, you can basically should be able to plug and play all of this stuff, but you can also like take certain walls out and sell them to other people or take certain accessories and sell them or buy them on, on secondhand markets. Um, and so because you have all this freedom and you can just add more containers and the containers themselves are already structurally sound, earthquake proof. Um, they have a very simple footing to go on to be built with. Uh, nothing is permanent. And this is like the key that is missed in architecture right now is that everything becomes permanent in architecture and if it's not permanent uh it's made to be temporary housing and it's very like under undervalued and under uh designed because it's supposed to be temporary and so it's like construction worker homes or whatever like they're just horrible it's like living in a cubicle um but this is meant to be your budget or like your it will be a very low budget because it'll be very cheap but with a very simple budget you can make high-end perfect finishes you've always wanted exactly the wall materials you want and not only that but you can adapt a room to become any purpose that you need so you don't need to have multiple rooms if you don't have the money or the space or the land to create all these rooms for different purposes in your house well you just fold out and take certain things out during the day and then uh where your bed was is suddenly your music studio or whatever and you can just like have a shelf ready to go that you just like lower from a higher position and put down. And then like your Mm -hmm. computer desk is there, you know, like everything can be moved around and adapted to what you need. Uh, and you should be able to upgrade or change your space however you need as time goes on. And so because of that, and because there's temporary, like the footings don't need to be permanent in the same way we, you can also like borrow or lend land or like find swapping contracts. You can ship your house around, uh, you can like add people on or add on to your home and you can have communities that are easily adaptable for this, like almost in an apartment type of a system. And so once all everything is ready, then I want to make this into like starting with some social living community areas. And so that similar metabolist way with like pathways between things and bridges and stuff. And then uh, also sell kits where people can just build their own homes for, you know, 10 or 20 grand and, and mm-hmm. just buy a container. So that's, that's the starting point. That sounds amazing. I I want one of these houses. Uh, maybe a larger form factor, Sweet. you know? Maybe like a four-shipping container house or something. <laughs> sure, yeah. As big as you want, man. It doesn't really matter. <laughs> uh, that's really cool. Um, I, I think one of the things I also like about this design, like imagining these like paneled walls, is the ability to also um i mean you you talked about running plumbing along the walls but theoretically you could probably also hide it behind panels or something uh just 
man, I hate cables and wires. And if I can hide more of those things, I'll be so happy. <laughs> you, you think that you want them hidden, but like, I'm pretty sure when you see just like a beautiful, clean galvanized line, like and a pipe running along the wall in like a very natural yeah. looking way, it's very different. Like if you go into a concrete structure and you see those like linings of electrical and everything, it yeah, just looks cool true. as part of the structure. It's, it's very true. like cyberpunk, right? And it, of course that's a personal taste and you could hide them in many ways if you wanted to, but I like to just embrace everything and like just see where stuff is. So you know, it's there, mm-hmm. yeah. which is cool. Uh, I, I see that. <laughs> That makes sense. I, I'm just like looking. So I'm sitting at this desk, and I have this cool desktop PC, gaming PC, but like the back of it is literally just like a nest of wires. And maybe it's just more about I, I should be more like conscious of my. <laughs> yeah. It's about organization. I should be more conscious of my space or like cable management instead of trying to like tuck these behind the little like uh, whatever the drawer units that I have around here. Instead, maybe what I should be doing is like creating some wire support so I can run all these wires along the wall and like an evenly spaced kind of cool pattern. And that would make me feel better. Yeah. Yeah. Or just have like a nice clean like a conduit. metal pipe that yeah. all of them go inside of. Yeah. Yeah. I need to think about this more. <sighs> this is uh, when people are building PCs. I think this is one of the funniest things, like the feedback that usually gets given on forums and stuff is that you need to, like do something about those cables. You just have like cables running everywhere yeah. inside of your PC. And like, that's the biggest oh, yeah. OCD thing of people building Cle- clean, computers. Clean, clean, <laughs> get those windows into your desktop PC, clean cable management side of there. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, exactly. so, I mean, I guess to my point on um, a function of reform and I uh, have started to rethink that. So this gaming PC I got doesn't have a window on the side because I didn't want to see people to see the inside because i didn't use any of the organizational tools that appear inside of pcs like i didn't use any of the shelves like i have a disk drive just like hanging from a cable inside the computer oh no like there's it's so bad (laughs) the places for like the cd-rom and stuff are just like cables are stuffed in there there's like oh the power supply is not secured to the floor it's just floating around I mean, I, I, I can see how it would be appealing to not spend the time to do all that. When I'm building a PC, I'm also thinking like, do I want to, I want to build my own case. Oh, that'd be cool. I don't want to just buy a pre-made case, but I'm sure if I do build my own case, there's going to be a lot of that, like ad hoc, this thing is here just floating and connected to that thing. Because I don't know, like you go for your own style or whatever, but this is like, this is the point that architecture should be is that you should make yeah. it your own and make it exactly what you want. But you need to have the freedom. You need that case to not be constricting in the first place because if you can only buy a certain case, there's only one slot to put yeah. the motherboard or whatever, like you have no freedom to do anything. And that's exactly what modern mm-hmm. architecture does. There's no freedom to do anything. You, you just have to live with the layout. It's terrible. <laughs> it is terrible. Um, so, since we're talking about architecture, I feel like there's aspects of we've we've talked about architecture but we've also talked a lot about design of the home and living space i'd be curious to kind of hear your thoughts on since you're talking about this like really modular modern <laughs> kind of like uh, layout and construction um what, what are your kind of thoughts on like the home automation smart home movement stuff like what it what are your feelings about these tools in this space? How, do they improve it? Do they create complexity where it's not needed? Like, what it, what do you see it as? 
Yeah, that's a really interesting topic that I've thought about. And I, I went to an interview at an architecture school once, and one of the questions they asked was, uh, what do you think about all these modern technologies um, changing architecture and like being used as a tool to create different forms and do different things within the space? And my answer was, uh, they're interesting. They're like very curious, but I don't think that they're really going to change anything to a high degree because like we're going to learn more looking from the past of architecture than we are going to just try to look forward from here. Um, and I feel kind of the same way about this home automation stuff. Like it's cool and interesting, but it's, it's almost a gimmick in a lot of ways because really at the end of the day, like you'll probably feel better chopping your own firewood and bringing it home than you will going to buy some if you put in the time to do it. And I feel like that metaphor follows through here with like turn the light switch on instead of hitting your phone and you'll feel better. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, there, I guess this is almost like an exercise in mindfulness then. So by making the space more yours and like doing efforts to maintain it and like contribute to it, it's rewarding. And that includes basic actions such as like turning on lights yourself or like kind of controlling the space yourself in some ways. Yeah, I think there's like a line between convenience. I'm sure there's some things in home automation that will come along that are just going to be amazing that like we're, we're not going to look back. It'll be like yeah. having a smartphone, right? But I do think that a lot of stuff's just going to be overdone yeah. and already is overdone, yeah, yeah. like you're saying. Um, so I think the little things that are getting lost and being overdone are really going to be missed. And suddenly it's going to be like popular to not right. have them yeah. anymore. <laughs> that makes sense. Um, I do have to say I'm a I'm a fan of home automation in general are kind of like smart home features. I think they're like really fun to play with and explore though. Uh, kind of to your point about modularity or like, uh, I don't know what you, yeah. True modularity, as you put it earlier, one of the issues with home kind of automation and systems in the early days of it was that it was a whole bunch of like these kind of like capsule systems. Then they kind of just worked with themselves and didn't really work with others. And so you were like limited in the like ability for you to actually like pair some of these different technologies with your home. Cause it's like, as soon as you were on Apple home kit or whatever, it was like hard to like use a Zigbee kit or whatever. Um, and all yeah. other crazy names that exist. And there was a company that uh, actually set out to try to fix that. They created uh, this, I think they were called like red gear or something. And it started with an R um, to try to create this like hub or system that basically like married all these different APIs and allowed you to like control everything from like, it could do with all sorts of like kind of third party systems. Um, but those were, mm -hmm. it was acquired by Google and canceled. <laughs> uh, I know, I know. Oh, no. Um, but I think people have started to uh, work with that kind of like integration between those different things more. There's like more tools that allow you to do that uh, to hopefully kind of drag that line of like convenience versus gimmick back a little bit closer to convenience. <laughs> um, yeah. Because some of it definitely is gimmicky or even like harder to use than not. Um, for example, I have a, I, have now have a Philips Hue light, at least one in every room of my house, which I enjoy because I like, <laughs> we did an episode on color. <laughs> I like using the different colors mm -hmm. to like express different moods or like uh, create different environments. But uh, at the same time, none of my lamps can now be turned off by hand. <laughs> <laughs> like I have to have my phone or at least access to like a voice assistant like Siri or Alexa um, to be able to turn yeah. off my lights. And so if my phone's dead or like I chose to do like a no technology day and don't have my phone with me, like I can't turn off my lights. 
I feel your pain, man. I got the, we got this uh, like multicolored uh-huh. RGB light in our bedroom as well, and it's hooked up to a light switch so that we can turn it off and on with that. But there's a little oh, remote yeah. that comes with it, and I we we probably haven't turned off that with a light switch for months because it just feels like you need to use the remote, and also that remote yeah. has to be somewhere. Like it has to exist, and that yeah. bothers me. Like I don't like that. That that's an extra thing in my space. I kind of wish it didn't exist. Right. To be fair, um, yeah. What do you think that? What about like integration with future technologies and APIs and the like, the new the new web that's going to exist? Uh, how it's how do you think that's going to integrate? Do you think the internet will be integrated into our homes in ways we never expected soon, or do you think we're going to push away Ooh. from that? I mean, there's definitely been strong evidence that people are accepting of letting the internet in the form of like voice assistance to creep into like every device in their house. Um, and so yeah. I feel like that's going to become like a bigger and bigger part of things. I also think there's a lot of it's going to come into the form of like, um, I think there's just going to be like more monitoring in the home. Like some of the big kind of like home automation tools you can get now. I don't, I don't know why I keep, these ones aren't necessarily home automation as much as they are just like sensors you can put in your house or whatever but like things that monitor your house is kind of like health and well-being in some ways like air quality monitors and things that detect like smarter fire detectors and yeah. stuff like that um, i think will probably start to become more of the norm including like people setting up home security systems and all this stuff just like it seems like there's more and more technology that is internet connected and in your home um and I think a lot of it's useful. Um, and so I think there probably won't be like too much pushback against that, but I bet it will get to this kind of like overdone point where you're going to start to get these kind of like sects of people who are like kind of into the norm where it's like a lot of stuff is like pretty automated. And these people who are like, no mindfulness, natural living, <laughs> which is like rejecting yeah. this technology in the home. Um, so yeah, I, I guess to your question, I, I do think there'll be, more of it and more of it in the future and it's hard for me to imagine exactly what things will receive like the most treatment i guess um but i think it's going to be in the like realm of like sensing and monitoring hmm. yeah that's interesting i i think i agree with you but i also wonder if there's going to be big pushback soon from so many nsa surveillance <laughs> issues and like who knows what's going to happen, you know, if they're, if they can see in your house, they already can probably, but I wouldn't put up a security camera just because I wouldn't want to be spied on by the government more so than like, I just wouldn't need it for that much to, to, I don't know, like see who's yeah. at your door or whatever. Like, I don't know. There's just too much, too many unknowns these days about all of it. And it seems easier to just, to, to just get away mm-hmm. from it, you know? Yeah. I mean, in some ways, again, it's simpler without it. And I think, People need to choose the kind of technology broadly they incorporate into their lives, but also specifically into their homes, since that's what we're talking about here, um, on really measuring like what kind of convenience it's bringing you. Um, I had a friend gift me a like smart speaker or whatever, like a voice assistant speaker. That's a Google whatever it's called. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Google Assistant or whatever. Yeah. Google whatever it's called. Um, yeah. And <laughs> it's funny because I got it and I'm like, oh, cool, like, of a new tech toy and plug it in and play it around with it but i like almost never use it um i i really don't have like an actual functional purpose for it i, I use it for two things 
uh one of and both things mm-hmm. can be done actually by my phone so this is like literally a not useful gadget um i use it to turn on and off some of the automated lights and i use it to frequently do it's in my kitchen so i use it to do like little like conversions like how many tablespoons are in a cup <laughs> uh <laughs> so i just ask it questions um but yeah so i, I huh. i'd be interested to hear i guess where people are getting a lot of value out of those tools because they're pretty almost they're almost ubiquitous now i mean like i i heard some stat the other day that was like insane like 30 percent of households have like a voice assistant in them or something now in the u.s yeah it was like it was Whoa. crazy high uh because these, these these voice assistants are subsidized by the by the companies because obviously they get huge advantage from you having their voice assistant in your house and so like scary. they'll yeah. chart like they're taking a loss on the materials basically of each device that they sell because the data they get out of it is so worth so much to them. And so because of that really low cost for this like pretty high tech item, um, so many people are like willing to buy them and gift them to each other. And like everybody has them now because of it. Wow. That's, I mean, yeah, I have a lot of thoughts on all of this. I don't have a voice assistant in my house still, which I haven't wanted one. I really don't like them that much, but when I go to my friends' houses, then I always want to play with them. Like when, whenever we go to Chris Keats' house and like, <laughs> I remember that there's this song from this artist called I've Got AIDS and he'd always say like, hey, Alexa, play I've Got AIDS. And then like, it'd be like, <laughs> and like, it was just this crazy experience. Like you just yell across the room and something insane comes back out of the speaker, um, which feels a little bit like yeah. magic and hilarity. But I don't know. I just, I, there's no appeal for it personally for me, but I do want like, uh, the Google home pod or the, sorry, the Apple home pod speaker, because, uh, it looks pretty cool. And for the price and everything, like having two of those on my desk as stereo or whatever would be pretty awesome. But then, um, I don't know. I, I kind of feel weird about being integrated into these ecosystems, but I'm totally in the Apple ecosystem. Like (laughs) I have no shame about it, but, uh, I like, sometimes having text messages read into my headphones by Siri, but I don't want that in my space, like in the open air all the time. I don't want Siri to to just pop up and start talking to me when I'm just walking about my house. Yeah. I don't like that. Yeah. (laughs) It's kind of intrusive. Um, and I think, I guess that's where people need to like, probably one of the main places people need to draw the line is like where, when, when can I tell technology to like stop or like when can I like have time to like myself or whatever without something else being able to grab my attention? Um, like, I think mm-hmm. that's one of the main places a lot of like home automation or even tech can kind of like fail is that it's like overly attention grabbing. <laughs> and so, yeah, by introducing a smart speaker, I think you definitely cater to that. But I think um, obviously home automation or like kind of home systems go beyond the like magic-y voice automation stuff and into like um, <laughs> things that can become pretty interesting examples are kind of incorporated into your architecture. Um, I think these hue lights are kind of like the first, like the, the smallest step in that direction because it's like the, creating colors in these spaces. But surely there's other cool yep. technology you could put into a home, right? Like LED panel walls or like, I don't know, I'm trying to think of some like weird stuff that you could kind of incorporate into like the architecture itself or like even like the heating and cooling system management, right? There's in, in a lot of these like future or modern home shows, they talk about more green ways to kind of like cool or heat the home. And it uses like movement of the outside air and stuff. 
a lot of this technology seems like it could be incorporated into designs like this. Oh, there's so many different ones. Um, Yeah, I'm glad you brought this up because I really did want to talk about this. Um, Like LEED certification, which is the energy efficiency of like heating and cooling and just use of Mm -hmm. energy in general in the space to keep it at an equilibrium. Um, There's been some really interesting innovations from this. One One of the coolest ones is like from medieval technology, which is just using uh, channels of cold water underneath the house or, or the in the foundation, basically, um, and just keeping these pools of, of cool water in there with uh, air spaces in between them and uh, in the concrete foundation is enough to uh, regulate the temperature in the house by up to 80 uh, percent, right. which is insane. And so like little things like this that can just be built in from day one into the design uh, and some better like insulating qualities, different materials, um, like rammed earth houses are, they have really, really thick walls, but they are just like insanely good at, um, keeping their thermal levels. And there's, there's lots of little things like this, right. That come in that, uh, can completely change the way that your, uh, space uses and interacts with the energy and needs to regulate that. But in Norway, for example, like, um, my girlfriend's dad for a living puts, uh, water, pipes in people's Mm -hmm. floors that's what his company does um and so they build these systems where they just have pumps cycling water and heating it up and they can regulate and they heat the entire house or entire cabins or entire right football stadiums actually this is like the radiant stadiums uh heating like radiant floor heating right and you can usually either get electric or water based it is okay yeah and so the elect the electric one has a lot of downsides to it i actually have an electric oh, heating okay. in my bathroom right now and when her dad came in to check it out he's like oh, our competitor's <laughs> been here <laughs> but, <laughs> um but yeah the uh the electric heating is it still works but the water heating is just so much better because you're not having to like release and waste that thermal energy in the same way because the water heating um water is just better at uh keeping its its thermal energy than right electric lines so um it takes quite a small amount of electricity to heat the entire house compared to using like radiators right. or whatever. And so not only is that, but you want heat to come up through the floor because you, your feet are the first thing that heats your body. So um, you actually want to heat from the ground up, but a lot of the time the heat comes from the walls and is dripping down from the ceiling and that's very inefficient. So there's just so many upsides to doing it that way. Um, and like, also the green roofs that they have here in some other countries where the there's a good you know like six or 12 inches of um dirt and natural compost up there and then there's grass growing out of it and that grass because grass is the most resilient plant on earth it can die uh and just keep the 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 stem under the ground and grow back every year so you can have them in like heavy wintered places uh and those regulate the heat like amazingly without needing almost anything else. You could basically just have that. Um, this is also why they used to have animals living underneath the farm uh, structures. And like in Norway, they have these really cool old Viking looking huts and there's just, they're always on stilts. They're always like six or eight feet in the air. And it's because they had all the pigs and the cows underneath to heat up the mm. the floor. It was like the same Weird. principle that they use the animals and it was brilliant. <laughs> That's cool. <laughs> Yeah, I think um, one of the points you brought up here is like water as like an architectural element, like just still water 
it, like you said, it, it mm-hmm. can be used in so many different ways, whether it's like a decorative pool or like a heating or cooling element because it's so good at like standardizing or kind of like regulating heat um, is yep. really interesting. I, I, it's also such a great like insulator in and of itself because it holds so much heat and it's also like a great like sound deadener. Like I've, I've always wondered about the idea of like houses with like water panels in them, like just like little like almost like bladders like in the walls that would just like... Whoa. Because it's so great for like soundproofing kind of stuff like that too. I actually did think about making some of my panels that were just empty chambers that weighed almost nothing, and you filled oh, them with yes. water. Because <laughs> yeah, if you could uh, if you could find a way to like circulate that water and heat the whole structure by heating the walls, that'd mm-hmm, be so mm-hmm. cool. <laughs> um, but yeah, not only that, right? It's also like thermally regulating and uh, soundproofing, so that's quite interesting. There, you know, there are a lot of in, uh, cool, different things you can get for your normal walls in your normal American house right now, such as um, B and O. Uh, Bang and Olufsen makes these uh, hex tiles that you oh, can yeah. connect together, and they're mm-hmm. like a speaker system. But the coolest thing about them is that there's dampening tiles you can put in there, and what they do is they um, take, basically, they have microphones in them that pick up sounds in the room, and then I guess they almost play out like a noise canceling. Uh, deadening and so the more of them that you have the more they deaden um the rest of the sound that's competing against the speaker sound and like that's really cool because that whole system is modular as well you can just make whatever patterns you want you can buy as many pieces of the different ones you can buy treble ones and bass ones or whatever and the dampening ones and so if you just had those like scattered here and there throughout the room and those were like deadening and playing sounds as they needed to that would be awesome and that i think that's like a good example of utilizing um different uh sources to make a space a little bit more alive and like different without actually like changing the wall structure or changing the space right it's kind of weird i I imagine that you could like do some like weird convolutional reverb stuff with those panels as well to like you could be in like a small office and make it sound like it's like a large cathedral room or whatever like the same kind of audio processing you do in yeah like a, a, a digital audio workstation like that'd be that'd be pretty sweet <laughs> just to, to be able to play with that like it the sound space of your home independent of the like physical space that's weird yeah we're almost there i mean the the apple home pods like they have sensors in them that read where they are in the room and they play the, the sounds differently right. out of different speakers in order to optimize for yeah. everyone to hear so like we're already, if one device can do that, imagine if you had like a sensor array built into your house. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Yeah, every room <laughs> has 20 speakers and 20 microphones in it and you can just, yeah, it'd be crazy. NSA can hear you and locate you in 3D space everywhere you are. It's perfect. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can whisper to yeah. them at night though. That's really what, what it's all about is like yeah. sending them messages. Hello, NSA, it's me. <laughs> It's me, Captain Nick. <laughs> um, so, so oh, what, is the, what is the takeaway here? Uh, I feel like, yeah, you, you should express the takeaway. <laughs> well, um, yeah, I'm trying to be a little less, I'm trying to be more cognizant of, of like how strongly I feel about things so that I'm not being mm-hmm. biased, right? And this has kind of been a nice development I've been working on for myself over the past five years or so. Uh, and 
So when I'm going to give this takeaway, I'm going to just keep in mind that like everybody has a different style and everybody has a different feeling that they like. Some people want to live in like a cozy cottage and some people want to live in a, in a very clean, um, contemporary, modern aesthetic. And other people want to live in a space that makes them feel, uh, their childhood mm-hmm. again or whatever it is. Um, but with that in mind, I would say that the key thing that you could take forward is really observing and taking time to observe the space that you're in and also the spaces that you visit and then consider how you feel in all of these spaces and try to figure out why you feel a certain way there and like how the different materials and the different flow and the, the shape of rooms, the amount of light in those rooms and what kind of light it is, um, how that affects you and makes you feel what how how does that change your emotions um the objects around you how does that change how you feel and your emotions and you you don't have to do this on like a very intricate level but if you're just kind of keeping a general consensus about that as you go through your day and like trying to visit new spaces and think about it in those new spaces you could even jot it down in, in a journal or something as you go um i think you can really start to build a consensus of like what makes you feel better or happy or like Mm-hmm. curious and then you can follow those paths to uh at least help you in the next space that you're going to live in or to, or how to alter the space that you're already in uh and i can just promise you it'll make a world of difference yeah i i i think that's the perfect takeaway from this is and i guess like put, trying to put in a single phrase like mindfulness about how space around you affects you i guess just like really thinking about it mm-hmm. It'll make you happier and healthier and more creative. All of it. Totally. And yeah, start demanding more architects to make things and less uh, engineers (laughs) because (laughs) engineers are making things boring and architects are making things interesting. Uh, Engineers have a very important job. I'm not trying to talk down engineers. I love engineers. I would would love to be one, but um, engineers should not be designing homes. Architects mm-hmm. should be designing mm-hmm. homes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 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 <laughs>